Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. The Telegraph. The Telegraph Podcasts The statue of Cecil Rhodes at Oriel College, Oxford has been at the epicentre of debates over Britain's imperial past Rhodes was a committed imperialist who was unashamed about his ambitions for the British Empire. To some, he is an inspiring pioneer and a philanthropist. To others, he represents everything wrong with colonialism. So, should Rhodes fall? To find out, I'm joined by Professor Nigel Bigger of Oxford University. We will explore Cecil Rhodes's extraordinary life and career in South Africa and the many controversies which still surround his legacy today. I started by asking about Rhodes' early life and background. Yes, Rhodes was born in, in around 1850, I think. His father was a vicar, and Rhodes started, I think, to study in Oxford in his late teens, but then went to South Africa in 1870, at the age of around 1920. It was from that point on that he was based in South Africa and uh, went on to, to start making money by mining diamonds. In terms of his values growing up, was he a man of the empire? And can you give people a sort of idea of the context behind sort of the British Empire at this time in the late 19th century? Yes. One of the major influences upon him in Oxford was John Ruskin. This was in the 1870s or thereabouts. And Ruskin was famous during that period for exhorting young men to go out into the empire and to support what he believed was a, a major force for good. So at that time, in the 1870s, uh, Britain was at the height of its industrial power, its military power, which was a, increasingly a, a democracy. And at that time, quite naturally, to, to Britons like John Ruskin and, and Cecil Rhodes, it seemed that Britain was the future of the world. And to promote the British Empire and British power around the world was to promote progress and peace. So Rhodes, like a lot of young Oxford graduates, particularly from Balliol College, where Benjamin Jowett was preaching the same imperial gospel, he was an imperial idealist. And uh, although most people think of empire as being about conquest and oppression and exploitation, whatever it was, in, in fact, it's important to note that Rhodes was actually inspired by what you might call a humanitarian ideal of empire. 
He was also very interested in Edward Gibbon and his interpretation of the Roman Empire and the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, his famous works on that Rhodes was a huge fan of. And do you think that Rhodes had a bit of anxiety within him even then that the empire wasn't going to last forever and that we had to go out there and and protect it? Yes, it may be true that all empires at their height constantly worry about falling from their height. I guess there's only one way to go, isn't there? (laughs) Um, And particularly in that period when the United States of America is growing in economic power, Germany was catching up industrially. I mean, Britain started off, had the advantage of, of being the first industrial power but others caught up. So th- there was a lot of anxiety about the future of the empire. And slightly later, in about 1890s, 1900s, a number of supporters of, of the British Empire were quite keen to try and find ways of making it more cohesive and, and unified so that it could resist various, various threats. So maybe, maybe a combination of anxiety and idealism made Rhodes feel that expansion is the only way to stave off recession. <laughs> You've got to go forward if you don't want to go back. Cecil Rhodes is a fascinating figure because he was such an imperialist. And he also, his story kind of links in with many of the controversies to do with empire today. So let's start by talking about his early life in South Africa. So he goes out to South Africa and he gets involved in the diamond mining industry. And he quickly is able to sort of dominate that industry and form a form of a monopoly there with his De Beers mining company. How did he become one of the richest men on Earth, that was one of the sources that I read about Rhodes. How did he, how did he become so rich? He became very rich very young. And I think it has to be said of Rhodes, as is, is often true of entrepreneurs, he was ruthless, he was ambitious, and sometimes he cut corners, he could be unscrupulous. But I, I think also one has to give a lot of credit to his drive. Entrepreneurs are driven, and that's why they make things happen. Uh, so I think that, that combination of qualities was what brought him such wealth so early on in life. I should also add, very early on, when he was farming in Natal, native Africans uh, preferred to come to work for him because he was, he was a better employer. So it may be, at some points in his early career, the fact that he was known to be a better employer attracted Africans to work for him. And, of course, European financiers and industrialists and investors depended on Africans to do most of the work. One of the major accusations against the British Empire, and we can hone this in on Rhodes specifically, is that the empire was exploitative of native populations. So obviously his diamond mining operations, his gold mining operations, this was simply exploiting the native Africans of their resources. And this is completely morally wrong. What do you say to this accusation? What what one means by exploitation needs a bit of careful thought. I mean, if one's a Marxist, then any surplus profit that an enterprise makes belongs to the workers. I'm not a Marxist. (laughs) Then the question of when is a wage exploitative? That really depends on circumstances. But to pick up on a phrase you used there, Rhodes exploited their African resources. Well, although I think it's true that the, the Zulu did do some shallow surface mining, most of the diamonds in what became the Rand were deep in the ground. And native Africans, given their level of technological development, did not have the means to get at them. So without European machinery and mining know-how and mining expertise, and without European finance, there would have been no mines. 
So it's not as simple as saying that these were that the resources were African. They were in Africa, but without European expertise and finance, Africans and no one would have got at them. As for the conditions of the workers, well, mining was never much fun. It wasn't much fun for white miners in, in the north of England. It wasn't much fun for African and white miners in South Africa. But Africans were not forced to work in the mines. Uh, they were encouraged by sometimes by means of taxation. But on the whole, they came, partly because uh, as a result of the pacification that imperial rule brought, lots of young men who would have been, by tradition, warriors, had no wars to fight. What were they going to do? And they found employment in, in the mines. They saved money. They went back home. They acquired property, cattle, status. So I, I think to describe it as, as exploitative is too simple. Although it has to be said, at times, the conditions in the mines were dreadful. In terms of his method of expanding the British Empire, expanding British territory north of South Africa and into other parts of South Africa, this is super controversial for a few reasons. So one of the accusations against Rhodes is that he sort of tricks local African leaders into giving up their territory, into allowing British miners to come in and then sending in loads of soldiers with them, allegedly to protect the miners, but actually it's to sort of form, you know, to evade the territory, as it were. So that's one of the accusations. He's also accused of basically mowing down local African tribes that British have you know, really high-tech guns, almost kind of machine gun type things, whilst the African tribes that do not have that technology, thousands and thousands are killed in these, in these wars to expand British territory. Yeah. So he's accused of tricking them, he's accused of, of killing lots of them, and using these sort of nefarious means, as it were, for his ambition. Yeah, those accusations are simplistic and I think to some extent just wrong. So what we're talking about here is the movement of Rose's British South Africa company into what became Rhodesia, but was in fact the outskirts of the Matabili or Endebili kingdom in 1893. First of all, uh, one of Rhodes's associates had gained a written agreement from King Lobengula. The, the British South Africa company could mine on the outskirts of the Endebili kingdom. Now, Lobengula subsequently repudiated the treaty, claiming he'd been tricked. It's not clear. Uh, it's possible he was, but Lobengula was no fool. He'd been under pressure from Dutch, South Africans, Boers, Afrikaners, uh, who were invading his kingdom from the east. Uh, there were lots of independent adventurers who were coming into his territory. Then the British were coming up from the south. He was try trying to play a careful game. My, Suspicion is that he did agree to let Rhodes come and mine in Mashona land, uh, but that under pressure from some of his younger, less patient, more imprudent chieftains, eventually changed his mind. But it's not clear he was tricked. But it is true that the Rhodes's people, the, the pioneers, several hundred Brits uh, with several more hundred Africans, moved along the outskirts of the Ndebele kingdom and started mining, and Lobengula tolerated it. There was no conquest at that point. What happened was, they went in 1890, 1893, uh, against Lobengula's explicit orders, younger chieftains conducted a raid into Mashona land, uh, where they basically subjugated the Shona people and used them for tribute or to take slaves. They went into Mashona land, they went into the British settlement, where Shona were serving as servants and started slaughtering the Shona. Naturally, this made the British settlers nervous and unsettled. 
Now, now it's true that they indivisibly did not attack the Brits, but they did disobey Lomagola in attacking Shona on literally the doorsteps of the British settlers. It was in response to that uh, that three months later, Rhodes and Jamison, his uh, right-hand man, decided that they had to subdue Lobengula's kingdom. Was that a conquest? Not clearly. It was reaction to violence on the part of Samandibili. When the war started, yes, it was bloody. The uh, British had Maxim guns, which were the first machine guns, and they used them. And lots of Africans uh, were killed. And, and some people think that's just unfair. I don't think that because the point of warfare is always to overwhelm the enemy. And if you have the power to overwhelm them, you use what means you have, apart from anything else that brings the war to an end faster. You don't go into war and expect only to fight the enemy when the enemy has equal power to yourself. You try and catch them when they have unequal power and you can overwhelm them. And we can be quite sure that if the Endebili had had Maxim guns, they would have used them. Uh, they certainly had rifles that they used. It wasn't strictly a conquest. Uh, yes, there was a lot of bloodshed, but it was a war, and it was a war, by the way, fought between two peoples of widely different cultures with no common conventions of war. So in 1890, the reason Rhodes has this political power is because he became prime minister of what was then Cape Colony. And during his prime ministership or his premiership, he is accused of instigating the seeds or planting the seeds of what would become apartheid. So I'm going to quote from a speech that Rhodes made in 1894. And this is all to do with what was the Glen Grey Act. And this sort of disenfranchised local Native Africans and instigated a form of segregation. So Rhodes said, what I would like in regard to a native area is that there should be no white men in its mists. I hold that natives should be apart from white men and not mixed up with them. Is Rhodes to blame for apartheid? No, because an awful lot happened between Rhodes and uh, apartheid in the 1950s, half a century. So on the, on the one hand, what you say is true. At that time, he did advocate a certain separation of Africans and whites in Cape Colony. And the idea was to set up separate local councils in which Africans would, would play a considerable part, but they wouldn't be allowed to vote for the, the Cape Parliament. But this is important. He wasn't advocating this for the whole of Cape Colony. It was for a certain part. He, he never supported attempts to abolish the vote of qualified Africans in Cape Parliament. And in fact, in 1899, when there was an attempt, a uh, proposal to abolish the African franchise in the Cape Parliament, he opposed it. So it, it's too simplistic to say he, he was uh, an early supporter of apartheid. But when we're talking about these things, we, we do need to remember at that time in the 1890s, the cultural gulf between Africans in South Africa and whites was vast. Uh, and so it was a principle that Africans who acquired a certain level of education and property uh, could vote. And, and there was a small, but in certain places, influential African electorate uh, of about 8,000 black Africans. And, and credit should be given to Cape Colony for uh, granting black Africans the vote in the same terms as whites as early as 1853 long before, well, at least a decade or more before the USA did, uh, on the other side of the Atlantic. So it, it's, it's not fair to say that there's a straight line between that act of, of Rhodes in 1894 and apartheid, not least because five years later he opposed uh, the abolition of, of the black vote. It is true to say, though, as you mentioned, that black Africans and white people had to write their own name, they had to write their address, 
And this restricted many, many Africans who didn't have any formal education to vote. So surely that is a sort of mark against Rhodes' name. Well, you've got to recognise that there wasn't universal suffrage in England <laughs> at that time. The number of people or the, the, the group of people who were given the vote was gradually increasing. But lots of uneducated working class English people were denied the vote. Because the, the rationale is to be a, a vote holder, you need to have a certain education, you need to, be, need to be capable of exercising public responsibility. And so education, I guess one mark of that would be property. So if you have property, then you have a stake in the country. And if you have education, then you have, you, you can read newspapers, you can make speeches and your political contributions will be informed contributions. So there was a rationale for that. But as I understand it, the, the qualifications required of Africans were the same as those required of, of Britons. And there were, as I say, around about 8,000 Africans who qualified and they had the vote. One of the other major accusations against Rhodes today that people, protesters, would go out and sort of demand his tearing down his statue. They say that he was a racist. So I'm going to quote, I've got a couple of quotes, but I'm going to use one of them. Uh, this is from 1894, the same speech he made. And he said, if the whites maintain their position as the supreme race, the day may come when we should all be thankful that we have the natives with us in their proper position. Surely Rhodes was a racist. That taken by itself would seem so. It implies that he thought that the nature has dictated that white races are destined to be at the top and non-white races are their inferior servants. So if that were the case, he would be a racist. All we can say is I think that what he said there does not does not square with what he said elsewhere. Rhodes, either on that occasion or another occasion, said basically what matters is whether a man is civilised, that's to say whether he's educated, whether he is in a position to exercise the vote, not what colour of skin he is. But at that time, given the huge cultural gap between modern Britons and, in many respects, unmodern Africans, to Britishise at that time the point where most Africans would become civilized or modernized or developed was way in the future. So at that time, uh, it looked as if white people were going to be on top and blacks will be on, on the bottom. Uh, but in principle, Rhodes recognized that would change. And the fact that when he set up his Rhodes scholarships, the conditions of the scholarships are that they are, should be granted regardless of race. Now, there's a controversy about that. Some argue, well, by race, what uh, Rhodes meant was he was referring to the tension between the British and the Dutch in South Africa. So he's talking about the British and Africana races. Against that are two things. First of all, the terms of the scholarships were draw drawn up in England, not South Africa, <laughs> where race, race without qualification would, would have a much broader application. And the second uh, reason to doubt the restricted interpretation of uh, race in the Rhodes document is that five years after Rhodes died, those responsible for selecting Rhodes scholars uh, selected an African-American for a scholarship. So as they read the terms, they read it as being uh, race-blind in terms, generally speaking, race-blind, not just narrowly speaking. At the start of this interview, we talked about the context of empire and Rhodes was controversial even amongst his contemporaries. And I'm going to quote from a letter from one of his, who was an admirer of his and then turned against him, Olive Schreiner. And she says in April 1897, quote, we fight Rhodes because he means so much of oppression, injustice and moral degradation to South Africa. 
But if he passed away tomorrow, there still remains the terrible fact that something in our society has formed, the matrix which has fed, nourished, built up such a man. So even at the time, he was controversial. Yes, and if you read the Manchester Guardian obituary, uh, it's not terribly complimentary. So he was controversial. I don't know to what Oliver Schreiner is uh, referring in particular, uh, and what particularly alienated her from him, nor do I know what kind of person Oliver Schreiner was. I mean, she went from admiration to condemnation. Maybe she was a person of extremes. I, I just don't know. Uh, so certainly there are things that deserve criticism, uh, and we've talked about some of those. But I don't think he was a devil. And I do think that he had a number of admirable qualities. And I do think that he achieved a number of constructive and important things. I mean, uh, we mentioned the, mine, the diamond mining industry. I, I checked before I came to talk to you. And mining in South Africa continues to provide South Africa with up to 10% of its GDP. So that benefits all Africans in South Africa now. So. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would take Oliver Schreiner's judgment with a pinch of salt, but it's true. There were features of Rhodes and certainly elements of his career that deserve criticism. One of the odd things about Cecil Rhodes is, I suppose it's not that odd, but at the time he was so committed to empire that he wanted to form a secret society to protect the British Empire and expand it even after his death. And he wrote, why should we not form a secret society with one object, the furtherance of the British Empire? and the bringing of the whole uncivilized world under British rule for the recovery of the United States for making the Anglo-Saxon race but one empire. Was he a sort of the most zealous man in a way, sort of a, zeal a complete imperial zealot compared to most Victorians? Well, he wasn't the only one. Uh, Alfred Milner certainly was a believer, although perhaps less romantic than, than Rhodes. I mean, I mean, remember, Britain was at the height of its power. It was the only global power and at that time, Britain did seem to be the beacon of progress and light. So there was certainly that. Uh, as for the secret society, I think he was modelling his secret society of, of Rhodes scholars on the Jesuits. <laughs> the idea that you, know, you have a group of people who, who go out and, and spread the gospel of uh, imperial progress and, and light. And I guess that's what his Rhodes scholarships were designed to do. Uh, but, but it is noteworthy. First of all, that the Rhodes Scholarships don't just go to members of the British Empire, they also go to Americans. And later on, he decided to add Germans. Now, Germans weren't, I, I guess, broadly speaking, Germans might be Anglo-Saxon. But in that period, Germany and Britain were increasingly rivals. And he wanted, therefore, by means of his scholarships, to promote good relations and friendship and peace between Germany and Britain. This was, what, uh, 12 maybe 14 years before the First World War. Quite rightly, you're mentioning the Rhodes Scholarship, and this is a fantastic kind of legacy of, of Cecil Rhodes. So in 1902, let's come to the end of his story, he dies suddenly of a heart attack, he's aged 49, and he leaves millions of pounds to Oriel College Oxford for these scholarships. And as you say, people of any race or religion can apply from the United States, Germany, or from around the empire. Do you think he gets enough credit for this this fantastic sort of legacy in a way? <laughs> no, I don't. I mean, right now, of course, he doesn't get much credit at all. He's regularly dismissed as South Africa's Hitler, which is absurd. No, he doesn't get credit for it. Although I'm glad to say that uh, Rhodes House and the Rhodes Trust have not abandoned his name. That's absolutely right. But yes, I mean, the, the Rhodes Scholarships in terms of promoting 
Anglo-American relations and indeed Anglo-German relations and promoting the careers of talented young people, not just academics, but young people who show enterprise and who show potential for political and other kinds of leadership has been immense. And I suppose it's a backhanded tribute to Rhodes that even Rhodes scholars who have damned his name, who have supported the Rose Must Fall campaign, did not abandon their scholarships. <laughs> so that's a kind of tribute. I ask all my historians one final question. What is your overall defence of Rhodes against all of the accusations that I've mentioned? And I'm glad you used the phrase South African Hitler because this is something that actually has come up in my research. I couldn't believe it, that he was being compared to these dictatorial tyrants who literally murdered millions of people. So what is your overall defence of Cecil Rhodes? I think it is that he was inspired by an ideal, and it was an ideal to which he devoted himself. Uh, He wanted money and therefore power to serve that ideal, and he served the ideal rather than himself. The ideal was imperial, but it's important to remember that to him and to many others at the time, uh, the British Empire represented the best hope for the world, uh, in the same way that, that many are now devoted to international agencies or aid agencies or human rights. The same kind of idealism drove Rhodes. So I think uh, that's notwithstanding mistakes and flaws in his character, that's what drove him and that's what we should remember. We want to know what you think. Should Rhodes fall or should we honour his memory? Let us know by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. If you enjoyed History Defended, make sure to follow, rate and leave us a review.